This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. If you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. Here's an idea. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin. The following segment of the Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by The Metals Company, trading on the NASDAQ as TMC. The Metals Company is an explorer of lower-impact battery metals from seafloor polymetallic nodules on a dual mission. One, to supply metals for the clean energy transition with the least possible negative environmental and social impact. And two, to accelerate the transition to a circular metal economy. The Metals Company, through its subsidiaries, holds exploration and commercial rights to three polymetallic nodule contract areas in the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific Ocean. Regulated by the International Seabed Authority, sponsored by the governments of Nauru, Kiribati, and the Kingdom of Tonga. Go to the company's website, themetalscompany.co. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Henry Weingarten, Managing Director of the Astrologers Fund. The Astrologers Fund employs astrology as the primary analysis tool to manage investment funds and advise institutional investors and money managers worldwide. Henry, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. Let's assume that my audience and even me know zero about the Astrologers Fund. Well, let's just say that in addition to doing fundamental and technical analysis, we do something else that allows us to outperform. And judging from our name, you can guess what that is. And in the past, we've been an RACTA, a hedge fund, currently now a family office. And how long has this fund been in business? How long have you been you and doing what you've been doing? We were in astrology for like over 50 years. And when we heard about the 1987 crash a year in advance to the day. When that took place, I said, I'm an astrologer. I make predictions all the time and spent the next couple of years learning how to do financial astrology, which is a co-specialty. And then we set up the Astrologers Fund. I think it was in the, around 1980, but I'd have to check that out. You've had a great deal of good companies come to your luncheons over the years in New York. And I've seen you around the world. You're well-respected in the sector. You have inadvertently or by design, either way or by the heavens, you've made money for those that have followed you. Most of the time, not always, of course. Our basic approach is what every financial analyst tries to do, which is to make more money with less risk. And of course, for example, we were spot on last year. So far, we're pretty spot on this year. But what's most important is what's coming up in the next 30 days or less. Things are not good out there. We may have been saved by the fact that the banks almost went bankrupt, but there are other issues about to happen. And there's about a 90% chance, which is extremely high, that the markets are going to be lower in the second quarter than they are now. And that means probably a retesting of the October lows and a good chance of breaking it. Our view is that you should be not investing now, but you should be investing for 2024. What do you think your own is not going to be better than I'd be reducing or at least hedging? Are you seeing, and I don't really like to discuss this on our program, but it's unavoidable. I don't want to be one of the pundits or one of the people, one of the journalists or one of the analysts, which I'm not. I'm not an analyst. One of the individuals that is saying, for sure there's going to be a recession. Plus, the companies that sponsor our program and you don't want to saying that either. And yet, sir? Okay, well, first of all, the recession, of course, is when your neighbor loses his job. So that's starting to happen, isn't it? But effectively, also, the sector you're in, which is commodities, are basically going to be among the best performers. You have gold doing well, you have silver doing well, you have energy doing well, and these will continue to do well. I mean, we basically have stagflation. You have to remember, it's, it's not just recession, it's stagflation. 
So yes, there may be some dips for some of these companies, but many of them will be much higher next year. So people will prefer having some real assets. It really depends on which disaster, by the way, this away after the stars hits in the next 30 days, because there are a number of things that can go wrong, as there always are. The problem is the underpinnings aren't there, and the Fed has used most of its bullets. You can say that there's no inflation, we're going to have a pan-gloss view, and we live in the best of all possible worlds, but that's nonsense. It's just beginning. The Fed has used up most of its bullets. Do the stars tell you exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and how it's going to happen? They do discuss when something is likely to happen. Doesn't mean it will happen. We always like to say it's a little bit like predicting the weather. I can't say you're going to get wet. I'm just going to tell you it's going to rain and you can have an umbrella on or not. And we can tell you that the closer we get to the eclipse of the 20th, and especially that weekend on the 22nd, give or take 10 days or so, or even 20 days, that the market's under significant risk. In the Indian astrology as well, there's a yoga that was very similar to what happened in 1929 and around 9-11. So that gives you the magnitude of what's possible. There are a number of things that could happen. Some of them are domestic, such as involving our president. Some of them involve the Ukraine. Some of them involve other issues as well. We don't like to speculate on that. We're more concerned with what the markets are going to do. And right now, there's a very good chance they're going to retest the lows and or break them. This is yellow alert time. We're going to be going to orange alert and then red alert in the next 10 to 20 days. And it's a time to be cautious, not to be aggressive, time to have extra cash and just not to be caught out. Now, maybe something won't happen. There's a 5 to 10% chance nothing's going to happen. But the odds are... And the risk is there. So it's a question whether you want to pay attention or just play to the last day. So on a scale of zero to 10, because you said a 1929 or a 9-11 type of event is possible. 1929, we had a severe market crash. 9-11, we all know what that was. Right. Discern between the two words possible and probability. Are they the same? Well, let's just say that it's a 90% chance that the end of second quarter, the market's going to be lower than what it is now. It's 90%. Actually, it's 95%. As we're talking, market's around 41, 20 and change. So the odds of the market being even below 4,000 in the next 30 days is 90 to 95%. That's as high as we get. We get higher than that. Now, whether it goes to 3,600 or 3,300, which by the way is where we'd be starting to be wanting to buy, and whether it's as soon as next month, I can't say, but I can say that it's significant risk. It's not always significant risk in the marketplace. There's always risk. There's not always significant risk. And as we get closer in the next 10 days and then thereafter, you have to be super cautious because you can wake up one day and the market will be limited down. I think you've covered yourself there by using the word limited down and probabilities and possibilities and you're unwilling or wisely not stating the zone, the finite zone. Of- well, I can tell you we're not going to be buyers till we're lower and <laughs> the market's significantly lower. With the exception of these things in energy and commodities where there are some value. Most of the PEs are still like in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Look at Tesla. Still what, 50? It's ridiculous. Sorry. The point is this. Earnings are going down. So are you going to buy stocks with declining or negative earnings and expect to pay more for them? And the answer traditionally is no. You think the market already knows that right now, today, as of today? I think it knows it, but it's still living in la-la land. Everyone's hoping or believing, even tomorrow with the CPI, that it's going to drop just enough so the Fed doesn't have to move so much or so can pause and that everything's going to be wonderful. The fact, the fact that right, these are not wonderful for many, many, many reasons in many places around the world, and everything's just going to be absolutely perfect, and therefore everyone's just going to buy. Well, the point is that was a fiction that works till April 15th, so people put their money to work in their IRAs. But outside of that, remember, it's sell in May and go away. But of course, what the smart people are doing, including ourselves, is sell before May and go away. And what we're saying is sell before the 22nd and go away, sell before the 20th, anything before then... 
maybe you'll get away with it. Maybe you won't. I'm reluctant to say, but I guess not that reluctant because I'm going to say we're both sponsored individuals, sponsored companies. Companies pay us to have access yes. to our audiences and they are doing so through those dates that you mentioned and people well, are attending is, those events. I'll tell you, for example, April 20th, as you know, and I hope you're joining us, we have a luncheon in New York with three top companies. Look, indices is not going to work. Basically, you don't want to buy like the ARC fund, right? Which was like down 82% last year. It's probably going to go down another 25% this year. Point is, you've got to buy quality that will do well. Maybe some of them will do fine in the next 60 days. People have to put their money someplace. Some of it does belong in cash. Some of them, there are companies that are almost not too overvalued. It's okay if you'd like to, to invest now and go away and not worry about it. Yes, but I would suggest having, number one, no margin. Number two, having less exposure to the market. Now, if you normally have 10% cash, have 20. If you normally have 20, take 40. But have cash available. If you didn't have cash two years ago when the market was way down, then you're going to be very unhappy. On the other hand, will markets next year, the next eclipse, for example, that's April of 2024 is very favorable, unlike this one. So you can hold it, but you may not make any money. But I'm not saying to sell everything. I would be insane. You certainly want to reduce risk. And however you do that, by writing calls, puts, hedging, whatever, because the market is under significant risk. And remember, we've called things from the Tokyo market crash on to Mexico market crash. And you look at our history, which goes back. We don't say these things very lightly. We don't say them often. And we usually write. Not always, but we usually write. And you're saying the date to watch is really April 22nd. No, I'm saying that roughly around April 22nd, there's a number of times. Look, whatever the Fed does is wrong the first you know, the third to the 5th of May. I don't care what they do. No one's going to be happy. They do something, they'll be happy. They don't do something. People are going to be unhappy. When things happen in the Ukraine when they're supposedly running out of bullets, they're not going to be happy. What's happening in Taiwan is not happening. What's going to happen to our president is not happy. There are a lot of things that could be happening. The point is, this is the time frame. It's not always a risky time frame. It's a high risk time frame. There are a lot of things that can go wrong, which is always the case. You can always find things that are wrong in the world. If you can ignore it, maybe you'll be okay. But that's not the way I like to approach markets. We do it on a risk reward adjusted basis. Markets are still too expensive. There are very few cheap stocks. There are some good stocks. There's companies that will be doing better in the next six months than they're doing that. Most energy stocks, for example, classic energy stocks are doing fine. And we'll do fine. Well, there's a lot of cheap stocks in the mining space right now. It yes, took a hit. It's taken yes, a hit during some. the last two years. And if you're investing for 2024 and you're buying quality, you'd be happy camper next year. So it depends if you're a trader or an investor. So usually one of the best times to invest is during or right after an event, like you're exactly. predicting. And if you have the cash available and if you have your selected stocks you like, absolutely. How long ago did you see this particular vortex that's coming? We generally look two years out. Two years ago, you had this week or so in April in your sites. Right. At the same time, if you read the articles on us at Forbes that I said at the end of the year, they were the only one of the major houses that called last year correctly in terms of the market going down when it did in October, which we called quite precisely. And then in this year, forecast, which is on our website, you can see it again, which we talked about three time periods, but the more significant one is the one that's coming up now. Same to freak out. We're just saying, hey, come on, just show some normal caution because there's no caution in the marketplace. Look at Bitcoin today, over 30,000. Again, there's no caution there. I understand. And I don't feel any fright or fear in this conversation whatsoever. Okay. I'm pretty calm about it other than when I wake up in the middle of the night and I go, oh my God, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but it feels like something's coming. We've all had those little intuitions before in our life, and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. And having this conversation with you, I feel that there's some hope. You're not doom yeah, and gloom not, right now. It's not the end of the world, in my opinion, anyway. I could be wrong, but it's, it's not my bet. Well, you do a lot in gold. Gold's done very nice. And look at it. It's nicely over 2000 It's a little overvalued, but there's no reason it can't go to 2200 or higher. There's no reality in the marketplace today. Is that something you look at? Reality? 
No, <laughs> gold specifically. Oh yeah, but I'm a Leo, so of course I love gold. We call the gold Umbriax days. We have a perfect record right now. It's only worth about 1930 as a crisis metal. It's worth about 2150 to 2200. Go there tomorrow. There are numbers in there. And the other eight may go back to 1930, which is we're buying again. 1830, many of the companies you're talking about make a lot of money. And that's the important thing. Okay. So in 1929, we had an event that basically, if my memory serves me correctly, of course, I wasn't alive then. Thank God. Yeah. It took 10 years for that to turn around. Yes. September 11, 2001, I'm going to say that was a three to five year turnaround, right? I think faster than that. We were telling people to buy three days later and the market went up. That, okay. They didn't want to hear that on the air. Then when that happened, because we knew the market was going down then, we called it correctly. We called it at the 5,000 uh, NASDAQ. And then we recommended buying that because the money was going to start flowing. And also remember, times are much faster now because computers all have the same targets. What used to take six months now takes six days. So everybody's computers go to the same place. They just have the feeling of bottoms in place, which it may or may not be. If we have a severe event during the time frame that you mentioned- or series of events. Or series of events. Yeah. Can we see a V sort of chart? You know, they always say in the markets, reality doesn't matter until it does. And what we're saying is over the next 30 days, reality may start to matter again. In fact, probably will. Henry, tell us about our sponsor, The Metals Company. That's one of our two favorite picks for 2024. It's a stock we've tracked for a long time. We know the management. In fact, we met him in Hong Kong many, many years ago. And we always liked the story because asteroid mining is really pretty cool, like Psyche 17. But yeah, we're talking 30, 40, 50, 100 years off. Where Whereas undersea mining is coming in the next couple of years, and it's got tremendously high grades. It's moved forward. So somewhere in the next 18 months, we expect more than a triple on it. It was our prediction in January when it tripled, by the way, then it came back down again, as companies like this tend to do. But as there's a long-term aggressive hold, I don't think you can find better in the metal space. Henry Weingarten, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. I look forward to perhaps chatting in a week or two or so to discuss what may or may not have happened. We lit up to the 12th of May. Different things that can happen along the way, but sure. All right. Thanks again for joining us today. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Henry Weingarten, Managing Director of the Astrologers Fund. Find the Astrologers Fund online at afund.com. That's afund.com. Join me for a conversation with Craig Chesky, the CFO of The Metals Company, trading on the NASDAQ as TMC. The Metals Company is an explorer of lower impact battery metals from seafloor polymetallic nodules on a dual mission. One, to supply metals for the clean energy transition with the least possible negative environmental and social impact. And two, to accelerate the transition to a circular metal economy. The Metals Company, through its subsidiaries, holds exploration and commercial rights to three polymetallic nodule contract areas in the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific Ocean. Regulated by the International Seabed Authority, sponsored by the governments of Nauru, Kiribati, and the Kingdom of Tonga. Go to the company's website, metals.co. Craig, welcome to the program. Great to visit with you today. Great to speak with you, Ellis. I've been at your website and I'm seeing something that really stands out. And I'm quoting here, the metals company is developing the world's largest estimated source of battery metals with enough nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese to electrify the entire U.S. passenger vehicle fleet. That is a bold statement, sir. It's a bold statement, but thankfully it's backed up by technical reports, both Canadian and SEC compliant. And it's in the form of polymetallic nodules. So look, five 
five years ago, I had never heard of a polymetallic nodule, but this is a resource that is huge. It's secure. It's relatively close to the United States, and it does have the potential to completely change the supply demand outlook for metals like nickel and cobalt and manganese. In fact, if you're talking about EVs, the U.S. effectively has zero primary production today of nickel, manganese, and cobalt. And what we have in this resource is sufficient to take us to self-sufficiency in all three of those. So in say, it's a different type of resource. It just lays unattached on top of the C4. But if you're talking about scale, nothing can move the needle for U.S. supply chains like this resource. Now, we're going to get into undersea mining in this conversation. And I've seen a few ideas floated over the last 10 or 20 years or so. And I always thought, well, how do you do that? How is it economic? And it's some sort of pipe dream. Might as well be space mining. Yeah, look, we actually have somebody on our team, our head of strategy, who was in space mining, in asteroid mining. And she'll tell you this is actually a reality. And it's something that can move the needle very soon. In fact, we anticipate being in production less than two years from now. In the context of metals and mining, that's just around the corner. But yeah, it's something that sounds science fiction-y right away, but it's something that was known about for a very long time. In fact, if you go back to the 1870s, it was the British, the HMS Challenger, that discovered nodules in this part of the Pacific Ocean between Mexico and Hawaii. And they have very high concentrations of nickel and manganese and copper and cobalt. A lot of the base metals near the Rocky Mountains and the Andes, metals ended up dissolved around this fracture zone. It is very, very deep and very, very dark and they form over millions of years. So this is a resource that's been known about for a very long time. And in fact, can go back to the 1960s and 70s. You had a lot of companies like BP, Shell, Sumitomo, Mitsubishi, Lockheed Martin that were successfully collecting thousands of tons of these nodules. So the technology to do it is something well in hand. And in fact, we showed in the fourth quarter of last year that we can collect nodules off the seafloor and get them on the surface. We did 3,000 tons over the course of a couple of days. So it's not a technology issue. The reason that you may not have heard of it before is that it's a regulatory issue. There was an agreement back in the 1970s on who owned the oceans within international waters. So this is really a long time coming. It's many decades in the making, but certainly the technology to do it and the cost to do it are pretty well understood and well at hand. You and I met a few weeks ago in Las Vegas at the one one mining conference, and I had a chance to look at these modules in person. I'm also now on your website, and it looks to me that the ocean floor some how mother nature, if you will, the earth has already done a lot of the processing for you. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, these nodules have such high grade of the metals. In fact, if you're talking about nickel, you roll all of the nickel, copper, cobalt, and manganese within this resource. Just think of it in nickel equivalents so you can compare it to other nickel projects. It is a resource that is 3.2% nickel. That may not sound like a lot, but then you compare it to most other types of nickel resources on land. The large undeveloped nickel resources in Canada or the US, for example, are 0.2% to 0.3%. So we are more than 10 times higher grade than the equivalent projects on land. So that's very important in that the economics to collect these and really the environmental impacts of collecting them are driven by how much metal are you getting for how many molecules you're moving. And we just have to move a lot fewer molecules to get the same amount of metal. And in terms of the processing side, yes, this is a very unique resource and it's very big. But once you get them to shore and you process them, they actually behave very similarly to nickel laterite. Nickel laterite is the form of nickel that we're familiar with, let's say, underneath the rainforests of Indonesia, which is where most nickel is expected to come from in the coming decades. 
decades, and which, by the way, is mainly controlled by China with guaranteed offtake to China. But these nodules that we can pick up off the seafloor at much lower cost, much lower environmental impact, and actually processed using flow sheets and technology at processing facilities that already exist. Is it more economic than every other traditional way of mining nickel? Not every other traditional way. We anticipate being the second lowest cost producer of nickel. So if you look at a C1 cost curve, measuring your cash costs relative to other nickel producers, we anticipate being the second lowest cost producer in the world behind Russia. The Norilsk operation in Siberia is even lower cost because they have a lot of byproducts such as gold and platinum and palladium. So those are worth a lot. But the byproducts that we have, copper, cobalt, and manganese, those are worth quite a bit as well. So we would anticipate producing nickel at negative $2.40 a pound once we're at full-scale production, that's with roughly five drill ships running at the same time. We already have the first drill ship that would be our first operations or at the end of 2024, early 2025. But make no mistake, in pretty much any scenario here, we're in the lowest quartile of the nickel cost curve. You mentioned these ships. I've seen photographs of one of the ships. We're not talking about a pilot project, a technology that has to be perfected. It is done and ready to go quite soon. That's absolutely right. What we showed in the fourth quarter of last year, alongside our partner Allseas, which is a Dutch offshore oil and gas company, they do a lot of cable and pipe laying in the deep ocean. They view this project and said, look, we've been working in the deep ocean for a very long time at high pressure, very low depths. And this is something that they thought they were well suited to do and they proved it. And in the fourth quarter of last Last year, we collected 3,000 tons of these nodules off the seafloor. The system is effectively a collector robot on the seafloor. Think of a really big Roomba going over the bottom of the seafloor, just picking up these nodules. And again, they sit unattached. There is no digging. There's no blasting. There's no drilling. So once you collect them, then they go up on air bubbles on a 4,000 meter riser pipe to a drill ship waiting on the surface, the type of drill ship that be used to seeing in the offshore oil and gas space. So really the technology to do it, all the pieces are there. And what we showed in the fourth quarter of last year is the first integrated test of such a system since the 1970s. So we're not reinventing the wheel here, but it was very important to show that, yeah, we can do this and we could do it economically. We peaked at 86 tons per hour production rate, and we have some modifications that we're going to make over the next 18 to 24 months to get that up to 200 tons per hour. And these are not big engineering challenges. It's effectively, you have a wider diameter riser pipe, you have bigger collector heads, you have more collector heads, but it's all the type of technology that we and our partner all sees consider to be well in hand. Usually investors that follow mining companies like to see a defined resource. Is that nearly impossible to do in this scenario? It's actually the contrary. That's what I look for in investing in a mining company as well. My prior career, I worked at a hedge fund based in New York covering diversified metals and mining companies. And looking at a credible source of a technical report from the right type of third party to know how big the resource is and of what quality and of what grade, that's a prerequisite for investing. Well, we have that. We're the only contract within the clearing Clipperton zone that has a defined resource statement. We have it that's both Canadian 43101 standard and SEC SK1300 standard. And both of those say effectively the same thing. This is a very, very large resource with very high grade. The reason there is such confidence, well, if you think about defining that resource on land, well, you drill a bunch of holes at regular intervals and you're trying to assess what is the shape of an underground, unseeable 3D world body. What we have here is very different. It's a two-dimensional resource. It sits on top of the seafloor. And it's in an area that is so deep and so dark, there is no plant life. So there's nothing to obscure the vision of what's lying there on top of the seafloor. So we do take samples similar to what you would think about for drill holes on land. We take, take box core samples, roughly one square meter. It's a turf cutter that goes down to the bottom of the seafloor and it takes a little sample of the seafloor and brings it back up. And we have many hundreds of those. And you can weigh how many nodules are in each square meter. 
You can check for grade. And the nice thing about these nodules is the grade is very consistent from one rock to the next. It's because of the way these nodules are formed. They precipitate the metals very similar to the way of pearl forms. So the grade of each nodule is effectively the same. And the only other question is, well, how many nodules do you have in a particular area? So I mentioned that you can sample it, but the real trump card here is that you can actually survey it. You can take images of it. And we have over 180,000 square kilometers of bathymetric survey data. And it's effectively like looking at a big QR code. You can see dark areas where the nodules are, white areas where the nodules are not. So it's very easy to tell over a wide area where to go to get these nodules. And we can put all of that into our technical reports, which we have. And I would encourage anybody to go to investors.metals.co and you can read those technical reports for yourself. Do those images also give you an idea of the grade as well? They don't give you an idea of the grade, which is very important to then assay the nodules many hundreds of miles apart. And what you'll see for our technical reports and from the box core samples that we've taken, a nodule that might be in location A, would have effectively the same grade as a nodule that might be 100 miles away in location B. So that would be roughly 1.3% nickel, 1.1% copper, 0.2% cobalt, and nearly 30% manganese. So it is a very, very consistent resource over a very wide area. And we're not the only ones out there. There are a lot of other contractors too, who have been studying this area for a very, very long time. And other contractors might be China, which has two contracts, Russia, Japan, Singapore, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, Belgium. So there is a pretty agreeable consensus that these nodules are consistent and agreed and everybody recognizes where they are and where they are not. You spoke about China and Russia earlier. With regard to Russia, you mentioned that country as the leading source of nickel right now. However, again, according to your website and Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, life cycle assessment by Benchmark shows your company's NORID nodule project could outperform land-based routes of producing nickel, copper, and cobalt in almost every impact category analyzed. No, that's a very strong statement, but it was a statement that we've been making for several years. You can go back to white papers in 2020 that do suggest getting the same amount of nickel from nodules out on the seafloor can reduce carbon impacts by over 90% versus traditional conventional paths on land. But it's one thing for us to say it, and it's easier for some potentially to dismiss it, to say, well, of course, the metals company is going to say it are the best. So we said, okay, let's put our money where our mouth is. We hired Benchmark, which is a blue chip, top-notch research firm with chip within metals research. And we said, here's all the data. What do you guys see? And they came out and then this LCA, life cycle analysis, also went to a third-party review and all of it confirmed we knew that for nickel across every impact category measured, whether it's the CO2 impacts, waste, acid, water use, across the board. And we didn't even measure tailings because we produced zero tailings. So that's another benefit of this resource. Nickel from Nori D came out on top. It was very similar for copper. For cobalt, we were number one, except for two categories. We were number two. So it was helpful to have something to work on, but pretty much without exception. This life cycle analysis showed that this is a better way to get the metals needed for the clean transition. And you didn't mention Russia. Russia is the number one producer for class one nickel, the type that typically goes into battery grade. What we're now seeing in the industry is that Chinese funded production is trying to take a lower class two grade nickel and convert that into class one through what is a very carbon intensive process, sometimes converting nickel pig iron into battery grade material. So all of that carbon necessary to take what is a pretty difficult product, nickel laterites, sitting underneath the rainforest of Indonesia, that can't be the only way. There has to be an alternative to that source for the clean energy transition. And we think nodules represent that. Does the metals company have 
perhaps the best way environmentally of producing nickel compared to all these other land-based routes, which can be problematic with regard to the indigenous population of these various areas around the world, the rainforest, as you mentioned. There's a slew of permitting issues that provide a lot of great nickel projects from ever happening, from ever becoming mines. That's right. That's right. And we do think by far that this is the best choice for getting nickel. Now, if you Google the metals company, if you Google deep sea mining, you will see plenty of negative art. This is not an industry without opposition. In fact, what the opposition tends to do is they try to lump all deep sea mining together to say, we should never do it. We should never do it. There are various types of deep sea mining. There are C4 massive sulfides. There are cobalt crust. These are the types of deep sea mining where you actually are separating the ore from the substrate. You're using explosive explosives underwater, and you're usually operating in areas with more bioactivity. What we're talking about here is different. It's a different type of deep sea mining. It's the collection polymetallic nodules that are unattached to the seafloor. Just like on land, there are some projects that are defensible and some projects that probably shouldn't go forward. And that same type of nuance needs to be applied to the deep sea. And we think what we're going after in terms of these nodules are a very special case. Now, there are issues that we need to mitigate and manage, and we've hired many, many research institutions and many top-grade scientists to help us manage and mitigate impacts. For example, when we collect nodules, it'll kick up a little bit of C4 dust, a little bit of mud and sediment. What MIT in the Scripps Ocean Institute in California has come up with is a model that suggests, you know what, the plume, the dust kicked up by nodule collection, generally rises one to two meters above the seafloor and then settles very quickly within the test area. So we think the impacts here are just a different scale of impact. And they are things that we need to consider and manage, but compare that to what's necessary for nickel laterites and in Asia, which is where most of the growth is coming from. You have to cut down a rainforest and then you have to go after a very low grade product. And by the way, in taking up that material, you're releasing sequestered carbon into the atmosphere. You have issues with indigenous communities. You have issues with hexavalent chromium. You have deep sea tailings disposal or tailings that requires more hectares of forest to be destroyed as well through dry stack tailings. There are a host of other issues that we don't have time to get into now, but our view is this is very lightly the lowest potential impact way to get nickel for the clean energy transition. Have you begun relationships with end users? As we head into 2024 and eventual production, I would think that that's part of your calculus right now and perhaps a funding source. That's exactly right. We've been having conversations with potential buyers of our metal. We see it as a potential upside. We see it as a nice to have. We don't think this is a scenario where we must sign an offtake immediately. It would be nice to be able to say, here is a major North American automaker, for example, coming up and saying nodules are the solution. They're lower carbon. We're all going to have to start reporting our carbon content in our EVs very soon. That is coming. It's already coming in Europe. It'll be coming in North America soon too. And this is a much, much better relative source to these metals. So we think eventually that'll take care of itself. But right now we already have an offtake with Glencore. Glencore is a shareholder in TMC. They have an offtake for half of the nickel and half of the copper from our Nori area. So that is nice to have a partner that's very credible in there, but there's going to be a lot of material available for other potential buyers. If there's some scenario where we're in production 
And certain customers have said, well, the press on deep sea mining still is a little hot. So perhaps I'll get my nickel elsewhere. We'll be able to sell on the open market. We'll be able to sell to locations in Asia. In fact, we've been talking to a lot of companies within Japan, within India, who need a lot of this material, not just the nickel and the copper and the cobalt, but 30% of our future revenue would be manganese, which goes into blast furnace steel making. And Sintef, which is a Norwegian research firm, came up with an analysis that suggests our manganese is 7 to 17% higher value in use than typical manganese products products with a much lower carbon bill. So no matter which metal you're looking at, we're going to find interested buyers. We would love nothing more than to wake up tomorrow and have an offtake beyond the one that we already have with Glencore, but we want to make sure it's the right partner. Well, considering you have Glencore involved, you can afford to take your time concerning more offtake partners in the future. I certainly respect that. Let's talk about the share structure of your company. How does it break down? Right now we have a little less than 280 million shares outstanding. By the way, we have no debt. We do have a unsecured credit facility, which remains undrawn. So out of those called 280 million shares, approximately 60% are what we would consider safe hands. The likes of our CEO and chairman, Gerard Barron, Andre Karkar, who is sitting on the board of TMC. He's the largest single shareholder at approximately 20%. And then Alsees, who is the Dutch offshore company that I mentioned, they've already invested $130 million into TMC directly. They made available an unsecured credit facility that we reported just a few weeks ago. And they've also, on their own balance sheet, spent quite a bit more than that just on the development of the, the collection system and the drill ship that they purchased on our behalf in early 2020. So Alsees is in it in a very big way. So between Alsees, our board members, our CEO, and other holders that have been with us for a long time since we were a private company, roughly 60% of those shares are held by what I would consider safe hands. So a question that we often get is, look, you are a SPAC that had a rocky run of it, as a lot of SPACs have. So what's preventing you from being private? And that answer is, look, our company with a very devoted shareholder base and people who recognize this isn't going to be a question up, is it 80 cents, is it $2, is it $3? This is an opportunity and this is a resource size that is so massive that everybody wants to make sure we maintain control, keep the market, excuse me, keep the project on track and make sure that we get into production and that it will be valued at what we think is a fair percentage of the underlying asset value in our contract areas. Right now, Ellis, we're trading at roughly 1% of the net present value of just our first block alone, what we call Nori D. You can go on our website and see the model for Nori D. AMC Consultants in 2021 said Nori D was worth about $7 billion today. If you ran that same math, at crude metal prices, it would be worth in excess of $13 billion. And we're only trading at around 1% of that, just on our first block alone. A typical resource company two month, or excuse me, two years away from production might expect to trade at 20% or 30% of NPV. So there is a major disconnect between the size of the resource that we're developing and what the market is currently valuing at. What kind of options exist for you as a company in the future and the investors that are either part of your company right now or considering investing at some point. Specifically, what I'm referring to is, will you be a miner, remain a miner, or can we see a possible M&A in the future? Yeah, we would expect to stick to our knitting here for a little while, recognizing that we do control what mining.com recognized as the number one and number two largest nickel projects in the world. And as we get the first project up and running, we'll have an opportunity to take what is going to be a major amount of positive free cash flow and reinvest it into developing some of the other blocks within our two contract areas, both of which, again, already have Canadian and SDC compliant resource statements. So I think you should expect us to continue to reinvest in the business as we ramp up. Over time, and I'm talking 2040s, 2050s and beyond, what we intend to do here is inject a sufficient amount of metal into the system such that we can decarbonize and then start recycling the metals from EV batteries. Right now, 
you can't recycle what you don't have. There's this insufficient amount of supply. You could recycle all the EV batteries in the world, and it's not going to make a dent at how much is going to be needed over the next 20 years. Once you make that big injection of metals into the system, however, we see a role for us in actually recycling those batteries to get Again, the nickel and the cobalt and the other elements necessary for a continued transition. So we can see that down the road. But right now, we're very much focused on let's get into production. Let's show that we can do it. Let's show that we're free cash flow positive, which we would anticipate being very, very quickly after getting into production, a matter of months. And that's one of the great things about this resource is that I talked about recycling the batteries. Effectively, what we're doing to get in production is recycling existing operating assets. And that means we already have our first system, which will be production ready when we start mining towards the end of 2024, early 2025. So unlike on my end where you might get your permit and then say, okay, now I have to go build everything. We don't have that situation. It's just a question of let's get the boat on the water and let's start running. Well, this is certainly the most exciting mining company I have seen in my years in the business. And that's about 25 years specifically covering mining companies, anything involved with mining. And I wish you all the best. I drive an EV, a Tesla Model S. There's nothing economic about that car at all, except for I know I'm not polluting in the cities that I drive in. And I'm hoping that due to companies such as yours, you'll help drive down the cost of EVs for everyone. That is our goal. That's our ambition. And as we get closer to production, that is going to happen. So as our CEO said in an interview just this week with mining.com, this is no longer a question of if it's going to happen. It's a question of when. And people should expect to see more and more headlines over the coming years. And it's a great time to be doing work on our company in this industry. So Ellis, I appreciate you taking the time. Craig Chesky, CFO of The Metals Company. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Craig Chesky, the CFO of The Metals Company, trading on the NASDAQ as TMC. Go to the company's website, metals.co. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Jonathan Weisblatt, the CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange and RRRLF in the U.S. Rock Ridge Resources is a publicly traded mineral exploration company focused on the acquisition, exploration, and development of mineral resource properties in Canada, specifically copper and battery metal projects. The company's flagship is the Knife Lake Project, located in Saskatchewan, which is ranked as one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Jonathan, welcome back to the program. Great to visit with you today. Yeah, it is great to be back, Ellis. Been too long. It's been very long. And to that point, let's reacquaint our audience, old and new, with Rock Ridge Resources. We have two core assets in our corporation. One is a VMS copper play in North Saskatchewan with approximately 250 million pounds of copper with excellent grades at surface with a very significant exploration and a number of very core operation targets in the area. The second core asset in our company is called the Rainy Gold Project, and that's what we're here to discuss today. This is uh, an asset that's based just west of the Timmin Mining Camp area, so we're in the right vicinity the right real estate. We're 35 kilometers east of the Bud's board in mine, and we're just west of I have Gold's Cote asset. So right real estate, right place. And guess what? Gold prices are now well through $2,000. And we think it's time to start to exploit the resource potential and discovery potential at the gold project here in Ontario. That's a high level snapshot of two Rockbridge resources. 
What is the plan for exploiting the high-grade rainy gold project southwest of Timmins, Ontario? What are you going to do? You've got a drill season coming, right? It is drill season coming up. We've just gone through spring breakup. It is now a very opportunistic time to get back to work. Gold prices, as I mentioned earlier, are greater than $2,000 ounce. So we're super excited by the macro backdrop. We have not been at the rainy gold project since 2020. So there has been very big exploration initiative at that asset. The reason for that is we were very preoccupied at the flagship asset in Northern Saskatchewan, which I described earlier, the VMS copper asset. Now that we've earned 100% of that asset, it is now a very good time for us to redirect our resources and our efforts to rainy. So what are we going to do? We announced a big drill program back in February. We recently closed the flow through financing and are now fully funded for a program at Rainy. And so purpose projects, uh, to answer your question, is to evaluate the strike, the depth, and the extension potential of the high-grade zones of gold mineralization discovered in previous drilling. Again, we have not drilled at this target since 2020. There will be a minimum of 2,500 meters or 10 to 12 holes, depending on the success, we'll carry out a second phase of drilling. Would like to go in and test the first few holes and see what comes of it. And additionally, we're extremely excited to follow up on some of the prior work, which included a hole that was drilled back in 2020 that yielded a 28 gram per ton discovery over six meter interval. So that was a very, very exciting hole. We didn't follow up on and we're getting ready to go back, retest that area. That's what I was going to ask you about because I forgot. What did your work in 2020 show you? And you just told me, so you've killed my next question. I really don't have one now. But you know what, Ellis? Again, I love to talk about these assets because I do think that there is tremendous upside in the real key thing here for rainy is that there's been very limited exploration history of this project like i said at the beginning of this call we're in the right parts we're on great street and we're going to build a great house i've been speaking with jonathan weisblatt ceo of rock ridge resources trading as rock on the tsx venture exchange and rrrlf in the united states i'm ellis martin Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SYH and in the U.S. on the OTCQB as SYHBF. Sky Harbor is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada. The company has just secured an option to acquire an initial 51% and up to 100% of the Russell Lake Uranium Project from Rio Tinto in the Athabasca with some of the most high-grade uranium targets in the world. Jordan, welcome back to the program. It's great to visit with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Lots to catch up on. How much land do you need to have in Canada, really, with just under half a million hectares, which I believe is over 1.2 million acres of property, all with uranium holdings in the Athabasca? It's a massive land position, as you pointed out, over 1.2 million acres now, or just under half a million hectares. We've added just over 34,000 hectares through staking, that's 85,000 acres. And some of that we've 
built onto existing properties or added to existing properties and other projects like the Cameron project that we've added here, which is the largest of the various properties that we stake are separate and have historical drilling and uh, historical exploration and are in a position where a partner company can come in and take the reins from us and ultimately advance the project. And we highlight that in this news release that these additional properties are going to be a part of our prospect generator business, which you and I have talked about extensively. We currently have seven partner companies, two joint ventures, five active earn and option partners. And these option agreements total to over 70 million in combined project consideration. So about half of that in exploration funded by these partner companies, and then just under 50 million in cash payments and well over 20 million in share issuances, potentially coming into Sky Harbor, assuming that all these companies complete their earnings. So that's across eight properties. And then we've just added another eight properties here with this staking. And again, we'll be looking to continue to execute on that prospect generator business, bringing in new partner companies. The market's been very receptive to these option agreements and option partners and JV partners is and allows us to stay focused our main projects at Russell Lake and Moore Lake while monetizing, keeping dilution in check and making sure that these other projects are advanced while we focus our time, money and efforts at our main projects at Russell and more. Look, you must be anticipating a huge uranium boom in the market. I mean, why else would you be acquiring all this land? Yeah, we are. We're very, very bullish over the course of the last five or six years. Well, really since we've been a uranium company, since we started this back almost 10 years ago, we've been aggressively adding to the initial project portfolio. We've done some major deals, including last year when we announced the option with Rio Tinto to bring in our second co-flagship project at Russell Lake, which as you know, we have an ongoing 10,000 meter drill program. I won't say a whole lot on it is we do have assays pending and we will have lots of news out on this program, this inaugural drill program that we're carrying out there, provide lots of catalysts and news flow over the coming weeks and months. But we're very, very happy with what we're seeing. We're very confident that this project will deliver to us and our shareholders a new high-grade uranium discovery and deposits in the Athabasca, in the eastern side of the Athabasca where the project is. So very excited and happy with that thus far. Still a lot of drilling to carry out and lots of news flow to come from that. But getting back to the combined property package. So yes, this is now one of the largest mineral tenure properties, portfolio of properties of any company in the region. So needless to say, we're very bullish on the sector. And in particular, in the Athabasca, we now have properties that basically provide exposure to all sub-regions of the Athabasca Basin. And we've been able to effectively monetize the sec- some of the secondary and tertiary projects by, again, bringing in partner companies to advance them. How are you paying for all this? Is it through the partner companies? Lay that out, if you will. All of these projects that we've announced today were staked. And it's relatively inexpensive to stake because you can stake online. Our geological team based in Saskatoon is on top of claims that are lapsing and reopening and other parts of the basin that just haven't been staked yet. So these properties were staked through that. As you've seen in the past, we've also acquired projects from other companies through share issuances, through exploration expenditure requirements and earnings. And then again, on the flip side of that, we can pay for a lot of this by monetizing or doing option agreements on new partner companies coming in at some of our other 100% owned properties that we haven't partnered up with other companies 
companies on yet. And we are in advanced negotiations on a few new potential deals. So keep an eye out for that. As I said, the market has been very receptive. It's, it's viewed these deals quite positively when we've announced them in the past. So that does bring in, when we find these option agreements, bring in new partner companies. Typically, they are paying us cash and issuing us shares on an annual basis. And we can turn around and use those funds to acquire more ground and to fund the focused exploration and drilling programs that we carry out at Russell Lake and later on at Moore Lake. In fact, we're expecting about $2 million in cash and stock to come in from the various partner companies over the next 12 months. We're well-funded here and we've got cash flow coming in from these option partners over the next several years. You've mentioned these option partners, and I guess I have to ask you to speak on behalf of them since they're not joining us today in the program. What are they doing? Yeah, there's a lot that's going to be coming up with the option partners. We do have at the East Preston project in which Azincourt Energy just completed a multi-thousand meter drill program. We have assays pending there, so excited to see what those numbers come back as. Really think they're onto something large there, and they've done a great job advancing that project. We're expecting another three, maybe four of the partner companies to either be drilling and or carrying out substantial exploration programs over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, in particular, Tisdale Energy at the South Falcon East project. So this is a more advanced stage exploration asset that we signed our richest option deal on late last year, just closed earlier this year, and they are planning an initial drill program for later this year. So we'll have some news out on that. And we are expecting additional exploration programs at our Man Lake project, which is based in Uranium Corp is earning in there, and as well at the Yurchison project, which is where Madero mining is currently earning in. So we will see lots of news flow from these various partner companies to augment the news flow we'll have coming out from our main projects, Russell Lake and Moore Lake. Let's take a look at the macro picture for uranium like we typically do. What has changed over the last few months in your mind? And when do you sort of sense that we may have a bit of a run in the market with regard to uranium if we do have one? I think one of the big things over the last few months to discuss is the major disconnect between the uranium price, the metal price, which is still well north of $50 a pound. It's basically traded around this range in this range for better part of the last eight or nine months. The equity valuations and prices have pulled back. We've kind of seen that across the board. And now most of these companies are trading here or at their 52-week lows at the lower range of their trading range. And I think there's an incredible value proposition there. I've continued to be purchasing shares, Sky Harbor shares in the open market, given all of the upcoming catalysts, given the portfolio of projects that we have, the discovery potential that we have, not just at our main projects, at the partner-funded projects. And I do think this disconnect, we will see this close. We will see the equities catch up as we've seen that uranium price stay north of $50 a pound. But I'm even more excited about the prospects of a higher uranium price than any one of, in my mind, five or six catalysts that could drive that uranium price higher than the current $50 a pound. And we've talked at length about this, but if you look at the underlying fundamentals, this is really a fundamentally driven market and a fundamentals driven market. And, and you can see right now a major structural supply deficit of 40 to 50 million pounds. We're just not producing enough uranium. And we're especially not producing enough uranium in the West to fuel Western nuclear power plants. You're going to have to see more supply come on in the West in regions like the Athabasca Basin in the US, in Australia, as a major player in the nuclear and uranium mining industries, Russia is carved out of the market. We've just seen also more positive news out of the US Department of Energy report that came out recently that focuses in 
on and advocates for advanced nuclear technologies, in particular SMRs. There's talks in that report of a 200 gigawatt nuclear capacity expansion. That's a massive amount of new nuclear capacity, almost a tripling of potentially of the nuclear capacity in the US by 2050 is what they're talking about. So even if we see a fraction of that, that's a major source of new demand that really isn't built into any current estimates or forecasts. It's even more aggressive potentially than China's expansion plans. Uh, as we know, they've stated they're planning to build 150 new nuclear power plants any year over the next 15 years. In China alone, that's more nuclear capacity coming on than has come on globally in the last 35 years or so. The advent of SMRs is a big one. We're also seeing the contracting. So utility contracting really ramp up and historically has been a big driver for higher uranium prices. When we see utility contracting and procurement really ramp up, we saw in 2022 an increase to about 120 125 million pounds of contracting. That's still well below replacement rate contracting, which is at about 180 million pounds. I think we will start to see the replacement rate hit over the coming years, much like we saw in the mid 2000s. And that's what led to that major price spike. So new utility contracting is a big part of it. And just the potential for sanctions on Russia. I mean, that's now making some headway in US Congress. That would be a big disruptive factor for the industry and likely lead to higher prices. It would certainly benefit Western uranium company. There's a lot happening right now. I think, again, this disconnect between the uranium equities and the uranium price, I think, will be short-lived. I think there's the trade there and, and there's a lot of re-rating potential. And, and I think that'll be expedited if we see that uranium price start to tick north of 50 55 $60 a pound. I see that across the board with regard to the equities and the commodities. There is a huge, huge disconnect. Battery metals, you see it there. You see it with gold and silver precious metals, and you're seriously seeing it with uranium right now. And I think perhaps the whole sector has to turn at some point. Don't know. You're right. You are seeing it across the board. So the, the equity market and mining investors are predicting that, it looks like they're predicting that the metal prices will pull back. But we haven't really seen that. It's been a little while now. Yes, the equity markets have pulled back and have been choppy for the better part of the last 12 months, but most of the metal prices are still relatively elevated. And so I do think that there's going to be some catching up to do. We are going to see a re-rate across the board, assuming that the metal prices stay relatively high because they are now trading. This disconnect is quite extreme and there's a lot of oversold situations across the mining sphere. And I think especially if you do start to see the metal prices pick up and start to move higher. I think that it'll just provide a, a slingshot effect, if you will, because the current equity valuations have catching up to do. But then if we start to see the metal prices move even higher, they're going to have to follow suit. And I think the shorts are done. I'm going to say it. If you're shorting now, you're losing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's probably that trades a bit long in the tooth. And again, I think they're wrongly betting on commodity prices pulling back. I don't see that happening. I think we'll see higher metal and commodity prices across the board. We've seen a lot of consolidation sideways trading. But again, the, the prices are still relatively high, right? Like we haven't seen them come crashing down at all. So the equities are trading as if they have. Tell us about the share structure of the company. Yeah. So we've got about 150 million shares issued and outstanding. We've talked about this in the past where we've seen a transition from a predominantly retail shareholder base to more of an institutional one. We still have a very strong retail shareholder base, but we're seeing more institutional holders, including various ETFs, family offices, some uranium funds. 
And as I pointed out earlier, we're fully funded for this current drill program, 10,000 meters at Russell Lake. Very excited with the progress being made there. And we do have money coming in from various option partner payments. I look forward to our next interview with all the news flow that you've got coming this summer, hopefully. Jordan, thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks for having me, Ellis. Looking forward to catching up again. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, the president and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and the U.S. on the OTCQB as SYHBF. I'm Ellis Martin. You may assume that Ellis Martin is a shareholder on any of the companies that sponsor the Ellis Martin Report, which means he has a vested interest potentially in them. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Keith Henderson, CEO of Latin Metals Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMS and in the U.S. on the OTC as LMSQF. Latin Metals is a mineral exploration company acquiring a diversified portfolio of assets in South America, primarily Argentina and Peru. The company operates with a prospect generator model focusing on the acquisition of prospective exploration properties at minimum cost, completing initial evaluation through cost-effective exploration to establish drill targets, and ultimately securing joint venture partners to fund drilling and advanced exploration. Shareholders gain exposure to the upside of a significant discovery without the dilution associated with funding the highest risk drill-based exploration. Latin Metals has recently concluded deals to option out exploration properties to a wholly owned subsidiary of Anglo Gold Ashanti, a wholly owned subsidiary of Barrick Gold Corporation and Libero Copper. Keith, welcome back to the program. It's great to visit with you today. Oh, thanks, Ellis. Yeah, thanks. You've got some fantastic discoveries, new copper porphyry and scar and mineralization at your project in Aki, Peru. Yeah, that one worked out really well, as of many of our other projects in Peru. All of our projects in Peru are acquired via staking, which is the cheapest possible way for us to acquire property and therefore fits exactly with our prospect generator model. This one we've been working on for a while. We always take the initial step with these projects of getting really a good understanding with the community and getting a deal done with the community so that we can move with confidence forward towards getting a drill permit ultimately. We've been actively working on it probably for a year and a half and we really had lots of good results. We focused on one area initially, which we thought had very good porphyry potential and that came true. We defined a large geochemical and all one and a half by one and a half kilometers. So the re release that's just come out that you're referring to is really the first time that we're stepping away from that initial discovery and looking at the rest of the property. And what we've come up with is two more distinct and strong mineralized zones. One of them is another porphyry zone and the other is scar. And we're delighted with both of them. I think that's just going to be more work from now to define exactly what those look like. This is really easy to read over if you go to your website, latin-metals.com, on the April 4th news release that we're referring to, and the third paragraph or so, it's the Tinto and Blanco zone, and those details are pretty explicit. I see 1.8% copper graphs. And also in the Blanco zone, 2.8% copper sample grabs. That's significant, especially if it steps out. Yeah, there's lots of room around these. All of these are surface samples, obviously. Our next step is to try and take a deeper look through geophysics. We've done some magnetic surveying. We're processing that data right now, and that will really help us to understand what this might look like at depth. The scar mineralization is likely to have a magnetic signature. And if there's something at depth, we're likely to see that or an intrusion that's driving that system. So that's good. That will help us design the rest of the program. And then it's really about trying to find a partner. 
which is what we're always trying to do with these projects. In this particular area of Peru, we have a couple of larger companies sitting contiguous with us to the southeast. Vale are contiguous and to the south, directly to the south, we've got Numont. That doesn't tell us that those companies will necessarily want to partners with us, but it tells us that this project area is interesting enough that it's attracting major companies who are acquiring property and exploring on their own right. So we hope that the discoveries that we're making here will help us get a partner relatively quickly. Well, you already have two significant major partners already. Are they interested? Or is it too early to tell? It's a bit early to tell. We, we've got Anglo Gold and Barrick on our register of partners. Both of those partnerships are in Argentina. That's not to say that we couldn't make future partnerships with them in Peru as well. So yeah, I would say that they're on my list of people I want to talk to, but so are lots of other people's. Is it too soon to gout out partners? Do you need more results before you move the project into a JV? I'm happy to continue working the kind of level we are working at. There comes a point in time when I feel like I've spent enough money, the targets are there, it's time for a partner. And we are getting to that point. I could easily spend another four or $500,000 on this, but I don't think I have to, and therefore I'll try not to. You've been doing a lot of traveling, talking about the company. I know that you're going to be in Arizona very, very soon. Are you seeing more journalists that are interested in copper and gold than you have before? Yes, I would say that I am. The kind of traveling we're doing, firstly, we went to PDAC, which I have to say was an excellent show just in the sense that there was so many companies and people with projects there. It's not a great investor show anymore, but it is an excellent place to be from a business development perspective and to actually meet with people that you're otherwise communicating with purely by Zoom. I think there's value in that. On the investor seeking side, we're being very targeted in what we're doing these days. We've taken a kind of a conscious decision to stay away from a lot of shows and we're focusing on shows where I think we get value. And just for an example, you mentioned Arizona. We're coming down to Arizona to the Capital Events Conference. We previously, a couple of months ago, went to their show in Whistler. And I'm not here to promote Capital Events by any means, but Whistler was a great show. Uh, we really felt like we got good value out of that. We met some really good investors and we followed up with them and we continue to have those relationships and we'll do the same in Arizona. So I think those kind of things are great for us. I think to your question, yes, we're seeing that kind of interest from generalists, retail brokers, if they're smart. And if they're actively speaking to companies as they should be, are always looking for opportunities. And these kinds of shows are the kinds of people you meet are the kinds of brokers who are really focused on getting out there and speaking to companies and then following up with their own due diligence. So those are the kinds of companies, the, the kind of brokers that you really want to be around, I think. Well, it's really nice after the pandemic, I believe is over, then we're all not wearing masks anymore. It's nice to get out there actually sit down with people and connect. And that's really how you build relationships, whether you're in the investment area or you're developing your project, you really do need to like the people you're going to work with and trust them. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. hundred percent. Tell us about the share structure of the company, Keith. Got about 70 million shares issued in outstanding. 50% of those are sitting with management and board. A great deal of the remainder is sitting with a couple of larger brokers with kind of clients tend to hang around. These are people that invested in this company three years ago when we decided to go down the prospect generator route. In terms of public float trading float, we think we've got around 17 million shares in a float that are trading. The rest is essentially not. That's good enough. That seems to be providing us with enough liquidity. You know, at various times this year, in the early part of the year, we were trading an average of 250, 250,000 shares per day. Pulling back a little bit, I mean, we're seeing a bit of a tighter market just at the moment, but I think we can recreate that liquidity through the remainder of the year. And we are certainly providing enough catalysts. I don't know how many news releases we've put out this year. It must be eight or nine. And that will just continue. We've got lots going on and we'll continue to put lots of news out. 
on top of the general kind of newsletter stuff that we put out to people who subscribe to us on the website. Got about 7,000 people subscribed to the company last year, asking for updates, and that continues to grow as well. So we're really getting out there and spreading the story. Keith, it's always great to visit with you. I look forward to our next visit in person. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Super. Thanks very much. Cheers. I've been speaking with Keith Henderson, CEO of Latin Metals Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMS and in the U.S. on the OTC as LMSQF. Go to the company's website, latin-metals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com. Do it now. See you next time.